I was happier then and I had nothing. We used to live in this tiny old tumble-down house with great big holes in the roof. <laughs> house? You were lucky to live in a house. We used to live in one room, all 26 of us, no furniture, half the floor was missing. We were all huddled together in one corner for fear of falling. <laughs> you were lucky to have a room. We used to have to live in the corridor. Oh, we used to dream of living in a corridor. <laughs> Would have been a palace to us. We used to live in an old water tank on a rubbish tip. We got woke up every morning by having a load of rotting fish dumped all over us. House <laughs> Hello and welcome to part eight of the Essence of Anarchy series. Following on from education and healthcare, in this episode I'll be looking at another core service the state provides that of social welfare. This will be a brief look, as I want to move on and focus attention on the thing that makes social welfare necessary. I want to look at poverty and examine the role the state plays in maintaining it. A basic financial safety net is, like healthcare, one of the things we can make a good case for the state providing. If high-minded principles about everything being consensual lead to people dying on the streets, then what good are they? On the other hand, it does not require a great act of imagination to picture how things like unemployment benefits may be provided in the absence of a state. The state is essentially acting as an insurance broker, one which requires compulsory payments from all people in a given area. In its absence, people would still wish to have the security of knowing they will be taken care of should they fall on hard times. The same service would then be offered by insurance providers, be they literal insurance companies or the kind of fraternal societies which were popular up until the time states monopolised this market. Another example would be pension plans. People of course have consensual pension schemes in addition to the coercive state schemes they are forced to buy into. A criticism that could be levelled at a purely consensual approach is that a percentage of people are either too poor or irresponsible to invest in such insurance schemes. We then have a situation where either through illness or old age they become unable to support themselves and they do end up on the streets. The burden is then picked up either by charities or the community, or they are simply left there. Is it not better then to make sure this doesn't happen by making such insurance policies compulsory? There are a few problems with this. Firstly, I would recall the paternal patronising of the lower orders I mentioned in the education episode. It's fine if you believe that segments of society are incapable of long-term decision-making and need to have their future well managed by their betters, but again, let's just be clear that that's what we're saying. The second problem is that it seems strange to create a blanket scheme putting goodness knows how many consensual insurance providers out of business in order to deal with the minority of people who will be unable to provide for themselves. There are non-coercive ways to ensure people acquire social security. Remembering Bob's apartment block, it is compulsory as a condition of living there to contribute to the maintenance of the building. Bob could also stipulate that residents must contribute to a communal social security fund. He could argue that it's only responsible to have such an organised system as the burden of looking after those down on their luck tends to fall on their neighbours anyway. I honestly have no idea whether this would be a good way of doing it or not. I mention it as it is the most comparable to our current coercive system. 
Finally, there are repercussions to such a system. As a coercive provider does not have to attract customers, it is not under market pressure to keep its prices down and therefore can only be more expensive. As it does not have to worry about bankruptcy, it is not under pressure to assist people in getting off the payments in the same way a consensual provider would be. This leads to the complaint often levelled at state social welfare, that it creates poverty traps. People receiving benefits are unable to take low-paying entry-level jobs, as doing so will cause their benefits to be immediately terminated. These problems manifest in other ways, with child benefit being conditional on not having a father in the house, for example. Exasperating family breakdown. I'm going to shift gears now and talk about the thing that underpins the justification for coercive social security. That is the continuation of poverty. Indeed, if it wasn't for poverty, would we really be worried about the provision of healthcare, education or social security? All of these issues are really challenges of taking care of people who are poor. If every household had an income above £60,000 a year, we wouldn't need to talk about these issues. The deeper question then is why do we have poverty? Why does it persist? And are there things our coercive government structures do that exacerbate it? The opening quotation is from the Monty Python sketch, The Four Yorkshiremen. Four men sit around in smart suits, sipping cognac, reminiscing about the hardship of their youth. It works because it's a familiar scene to Britons of a certain age. The Monty Python crew, being born just after the Second World War, would have grown up in an age of ever-increasing living standards. They would have listened to an older generation explain the poverty of the pre-war world. That generation struggled to explain this contrast to a world that couldn't understand leaving the house to go to the toilet. It's hard for us to conceive of just how fast things changed. To read George Orwell's The Road to Wikimedia about the living condition of miners in the 1930s is to visit a world unimaginable to anyone born just a few decades later. Yet this poverty was humanity's natural state since time immemorial. Read some accounts of the lives of peasants in Elizabethan England, and the 1930s suddenly seems like a paradise. Poverty began to diminish in the 19th century, only really shifting for people in the latter half of the 20th. The engine that ultimately drove this was obviously the development of labour-saving technology. And yet, we never quite seem to get to a place where poverty is finally dealt a decisive blow. It sticks around somehow. What does coercion do to enable this? If we think once more about organised crime, it's obvious that it acts to increase poverty. A few people are enriched at the expense of the many. This is in contrast to consensual trade, where goods are exchanged in a way that benefits and enriches both parties. Let's imagine a situation where organised crime was driven by a misguided sense of altruism. If we bring back Feature the Manor, in this scenario, he is concerned that some people are not able to afford gardening services. To address this, he provides gardening to all through implementing a system of taxation. How would this play out? Well, absent market competition, there is no way for Feature to know what his prices should be. Absent market pressure, it is virtually impossible to believe they will be as cheap as a consensual system would provide. 
It is then inevitable that Feature's well-meaning efforts will provide gardening services to all, but only at the cost of making everyone in the system poorer. The same logic holds with the state. Irrespective of how well-meaning state employees are, they are not subject to market pressure to lower the costs of their services. Nobody has to sit up into the night thinking of a way to cut costs for fear of going out of business. Coercively funded services can then only act to exasperate poverty. Absent market competition, it is virtually impossible for them to be as efficient as consensual ones. Does this make a big difference? Well, if you think about it, the average person in the average country is spending probably in the region of 20 years of their working life just paying taxes. That is to say, just paying for coercively funded services. I have seen studies that claim to demonstrate state coercive services to be about twice as expensive as market consensual ones. Barring the discovery of some general principle that determines this, it could obviously alter greatly in different places and times. Whatever the amount is, it is clear that, given the size of the spend, any substantial difference will lead to a massive increase in poverty. People are essentially wasting years of labour on inefficiency. If it is double the cost, then the average person would be able to receive all the same services and retire 10 years earlier in a fully consensual system. And that's not taking anything else the state does into account. Moving on, let's look at house prices. After paying taxes, the biggest cost anyone is likely to incur in their life is the cost of their house with mortgages typically being paid off over decades. How does the state contribute to this? Firstly, the state regulates land, dictating where houses can and cannot be built. This obviously reduces the supply and increases the cost. It's not a simple problem. Perhaps we wouldn't want houses popping up everywhere, despoiling the landscape. But the trade-off is people working additional years of their lives due to restricted supply. We should recognise this is the true cost of the Greenbelt. The restriction on house building is woven into the fabric of a democratic state. If a majority of people own houses, it becomes in their interests to vote for politicians who will restrict building. It is certainly not in the interests of anyone looking to get on the property ladder, but because the will of the majority is king, there's very little they can do about it. An easier problem to solve is state regulation over how houses are constructed. I have some insight into this, as I actually helped friends construct their wooden house in a single day. That is, after the foundations were laid. They told me the total construction cost came to under £25,000. Sometime later, they were able to extend it into being a small mansion for only a few thousand pounds more. Obviously houses need to be of a certain standard in the sense of not overloading joists, etc. But building codes often have more to do with consistency in aesthetics than safety. The ugly side of these aesthetics is people labouring their lives away and paying off inflated mortgages. It seems that housing can be provided cheaply enough for anyone to access, as this musician in LA demonstrated. In Los Angeles, a growing movement is having a big impact. It's an innovative effort to help the homeless. Giving homes to the homeless. They were built by a self-described struggling musician named Elvis Summers. I got involved uh, with building tiny houses because of a woman named Smokey. Uh, she's 62 years old. 
lives in my neighborhood, and as I got to know her, realized that she was sleeping in the dirt, and uh, I decided to build her a tiny house. In his 20s, Summers was homeless for stretches of time himself. Now the 39-year-old is trying to help his neighbors who have fallen on hard times. Some other uh, homeless people came by and asked if I could build them one. I didn't have the money, so I figured, let me try one of these crowdfunding things I've seen out there. I mean, it blew my mind. I, I mean, I think I passed 50,000 in the first week. Total, I've raised uh, you know over 100,000. Summers has built tiny homes for nearly 40 people, aided by professional contractors and other volunteers who sign up to help through his nonprofit, Starting Human. Each house costs roughly $1,200 for materials. The houses I build have carpet, two windows, a steel reinforced door, smoke detector. It's got a solar panel on the roof, powers two light bulbs, and the battery pack has a USB port on it to charge a cell phone, which is huge. An address, American flag, Summers also equips each of the 6 by 10 foot houses with a camping toilet and even window alarms. He says they were never meant to be a permanent solution, but unlike sleeping on the sidewalk or in a tent, his tiny houses provide the secure foundation residents need to improve their lives. You know, the tiny houses uh, provide immediate shelter. You know, the, the houses I build are very sturdy and safe. Um, people can lock their stuff up and know that when they come back from their drug treatment program or a court or finding a job all day that their stuff is where they left it. The Los Angeles Council did not look favorably upon the project. On the morning of the 9th, police and garbage trucks descended, towing three of the houses to a Bureau of Sanitation lot for disposal. My phone just blows up by everybody on, on uh, 42nd Street just freaking out like they're throwing us out of the houses they're telling us they're taking them like what do we do i mean they wouldn't let them get their clothes or their medications they threw them out left them on the sidewalk i pleaded with them i was like okay well look they have wheel locks on them let me unlock the wheels at least you know so you don't break them no they refused they just wanted to take them and destroy them this covers what i believe are the two most obvious ways in which coercion creates poverty Others include excessive regulation, the most egregious example of which we saw in the healthcare episode, enforcement of intellectual property rights, the banning of entry-level jobs through imposing a minimum wage, and the wealth transfer that comes with the printing of money. I may address these in appendices episodes after the main body of the series concludes, but I feel these two are sufficient to make the point for now. If you would like to know more, in constructing this episode, I've particularly drawn on Anthony Samaroff's book, Universal Basic Income, For and Against. To end on an uplifting note, we have seen examples of countries like South Korea transitioning from being utterly war-torn and impoverished to having first world living standards inside a single generation. The contrast with its northern neighbour one of the most coercive countries in the world, is telling. Further resource challenges may need to be met for the whole world to go this way, but it is at least possible. It's amazing to think that the world could, in principle, completely leave poverty behind within most of our lifetimes. The roadmap to doing so is already laid out. Thanks for listening. Next time, in our final episode of these examples, I'll be taking a look at the area which is perhaps the state's most jealously guarded service, that of defence. <laughs>